0: Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com.
1: I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Chef Emily broadcasting to you not live this week from Roberta's Pizza. I am currently teaching a kids' culinary summer camp in the middle of Manhattan, but I wanted to give you a show this week, and so we have put together two stories, one of which you may have heard already, which is my piece on sustainable seafood in which I talked to Tom Colicchio about finding a silver bullet for solving the sustainable seafood problem, And the other is with New York Times bestselling author Deborah Harkness, who has written the All Souls trilogy, and she is charming and wonderful and loves to talk about food and wine. So we uh, will give you both of those now, and I will return next week. Hi, Deborah. Welcome to Sharp and Hot. Hi. Thank
2: you for having me, Chef Emily. This is great. I looked at my list and thought, how fantastic.
1: I'm very glad to hear that. You are a best-selling author of a trilogy of fantasy books that um, is being compared to Twilight and Harry Potter for grown-ups and intellectuals. But what the world may not know is that you are also a huge lover of all things food and wine.
2: I am a huge lover of all things food and wine, and actually, um, once upon a time, I used to write a wine blog which i miss a lot but i've been so busy lately i haven't had a chance to write on it so yes i'm a big foodie
1: so how did you how did you first fall in love with wine
2: you know my i grew up in a family where there was always wine on the table it was never, you know, a hugely expensive bottle. I remember bottles of Matus, the mm. Portuguese rosé with the kind of, you know, funny-shaped bottle, but there was always a wine on the table, and every meal was a celebration. My mom and dad are both avid cooks, and and so we were always experimenting with, you know, what was in the 1970s in suburban Philadelphia, very exotic food, like Indian curry and homemade pizza and all kinds of things, and, uh, and so I just grew up thinking of wine and food and family family in sort of the same breath. And as I got older and began to explore myself, what I learned was that wine is a wonderful way to travel and learn history, uh, all without leaving your room. You can kind of pour yourself a glass of Portuguese or Spanish or Italian wine and think about where it came from and learn a little bit about it. And and uh, I was hooked.
1: And you are, first of all, I completely agree. When When I'm craving travel and I can't leave my desk or my house, I often – there are particular regions in the world where you can drink a glass of wine and you are just transported to that place.
2: Absolutely. And this is what is so, you know, really is magical about it is to to sort of sometimes – uh, you know, I I will think, oh, I miss the northern coast of California, and I go out and I look for a a bottle of Sonoma Chardonnay, and and I can just imagine that I'm sitting on the seaside, you know, up at the seaside, overlooking the Pacific, and drinking this wine, and and it 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 really is a a very special thing, and and food as well, you know, uh, in the depths of winter to make yourself up a wonderful searingly hot Thai dish uh, can really really change your whole attitude towards life. I think
1: it's. So- so, so true. And your wine blog was all about finding great bottles that are under $20. Which will you tell people, will you reiterate what I say, which is that's not very hard to do?
2: It is absolutely not very hard to do. I think uh, one of the things that you need to do to drink really well is you need to be a little bit of an adventurer and explorer. Uh, there's certain, it's like brand name anything. You know, there's certain brand names and kinds of wine like Chardonnay or Merlot that, uh, you know, are just sort of default options that everybody's heard of. But if you go in, find yourself a really great wine store and walk in and say, you know, I know nothing about wine. I've had Chardonnay and liked it. What should I have next? The wine store owner will just say, here's a great bottle of, here's an Italian white from Northern Italy, and it's 10 bucks a bottle. And You would be amazed at what's out there um, for very affordable prices. And nobody should be afraid to display their ignorance of wine. Sometimes I think wine can be a little intimidating.
1: That is so, so true. And having a good wine store where you get to know the salespeople and they get to know you. I mean, people who know about wine, by and large, love to geek out about it. So you can easily... Go in say, I don't know anything, but within a couple of trips to the same wine store, you'll start to know what you like and be able to say, you know what, I, it turns out that I really like cold weather whites. And then you're exactly. like in a conversation, which is wonderful. And, you know, I tell people this is something that's if, if it's not fun, you're totally doing it wrong. Exactly. It should not be
2: huge and serious. And like everything in life, you're going to make a few mistakes along the way. You're going to buy a bottle and you're not going to like it all that much. And then when you go back to the store and say, you know, that Zinfandel you gave me, I didn't like it. It was too heavy. And they'll say, oh, okay, well, here, have this instead. and you're going to develop uh, a whole repertoire and then you'll never, you'll be the most popular person in your group of friends when you go out to dinner and everybody stares at the wine list and doesn't know what to do. And you can say, I think we should have a Tempranillo tonight. And you'll just be, you know, <laughs> everyone will be so grateful um, uh, for, for, for you to sort of uh, take the lead and be, you know, be aware. And it's, it's just, it's just fun. It's just a fun thing to do and to have with meals is, is, is a treat.
1: So let's talk about meals. What uh, do you prefer to eat out or cook at home?
2: You know, I, ha- I love to cook at home. And I'm one of those people who sits down every Sunday with a cup of coffee and plans out menus and then goes grocery shopping for them. But I have one huge weakness, and that is breakfasts out. Oh. I love going out to breakfast. I think having someone else make coffee and scramble me eggs is just about the biggest luxury on the planet. Um, so uh, the rest of the meals I tend to cook cook myself,
0: but boy, do I like to go out to eat for
1: breakfast. Are there some highlights, where places where you go out for breakfast that you could say this is the best? Like for me, the Mad Batter in Cape May, New Jersey, just has this comfort nostalgia, and it's blueberry pancakes and coffee, and I just absolutely love it there. Do you have some favorites? Oh my
2: gosh. Um, that sounds wonderful. I'm writing that down. <laughs> Cape May, New Jersey. That sounds good. You know, one there's a restaurant uh, in L.A. called the Apple Pan that's great, sort of sounds very similar to this. Um, I I live on the eastern side of Los Angeles, and uh, there's a wonderful place that makes great breakfast called Green Street that does, you know, they do. They're always experimenting. So one of the things they're doing right now that I love is they're doing, uh, breakfast quinoa, um, which I'd never had before. And I thought, I don't want this. And my trusty waiter said, you're going to love this quinoa <laughs> when you have it. And it was delicious. So, uh, so you, you know, I think for, the real secret to all great breakfast places that they're local and close to your house and you see friends and regulars there all the time. And that's part of the the fun of it.
1: And anywhere that makes blueberry pancakes with real blue or fresh blueberries as opposed to canned blueberries, they win my, they win me over.
2: Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm a real sucker for baked goods and probably my favorite bakery in the whole world. And my morning, morning, uh, vacation spot. So it's probably my happiest breakfast place. It's a wonderful place called Two Fish Baking Company, which is up on the remote Sonoma Coast at a place called the Sea Ranch. And two women get up every morning and they hand make croissants and baguettes. And going there at seven o'clock or eight o'clock when they open and getting coffee and a fresh baked croissant is just and
1: heaven, heaven, like, heaven, heaven. Just listening to you, you are such an excellent storyteller, which is very obvious in your writing, but I'm just transported to that place as you talk about this.
2: <laughs> it, is worth a, it is worth a trip. I'll tell you, two and a half hours north of San Francisco, but a beautiful drive and wonderful food when you get there.
1: Right, and the thing that's great about seeking out places like this as opposed to defaulting to chains that you're familiar with is that these are people who love what they do and where they are their rents probably aren't sky high so they you know they don't have the pressure of being in the city like in New York or in San Francisco and they're doing it out of absolute love and passion for their craft and as a consumer you get a croissant it's probably less than two dollars right but you have all of their love put into this bake that's good and listen to us talk about it like we will talk about this forever
2: as do the people who visit there and you you will have people from you know all over who are vacationing there sort of saying this is the best baguette or croissant I have ever had and you know it's because these two women have been up since two in the morning making this they've got this kind of commitment to to the craft as you're saying and one of the great joys is sharing it and you know really isn't that what all food and wine is about it's about sharing it with people you care about and i think something sort of magical and alchemical happens just in that very act of of giving you know to a friend or a loved one um that makes everything taste a little bit better
1: so speaking of magical and alchemical tell me about the all souls trilogy that has brought you some excellent critical wonderful success
2: well, it's a, it's a story about three main characters. One of them is a reluctant witch and historian named Diana Bishop. And the other is a 1,500-year-old vampire and geneticist with a wonderful wine cellar named Matthew Claremont. And the third character is a missing alchemical manuscript from Oxford's Bodleian Library that no one has any knowledge of what it contains, but everybody wants to have it and control it because they think it just might have the secret to life. And uh, the, the three books really chart the evolution of Matthew and Diana's relationship as they sort of try to figure out how it can be for a witch and a vampire to be together and also what this mysterious book actually contains within it and all wraps up in the third book, the
1: Book of Life, which just comes out today, this morning. That's so speak, exciting! So, yeah. so now, when when you is it a fair question to ask of a writer? Did you expect this kind of success when you put down your pen? Did you think, "Yep, I've nailed it"?
2: You know, it's a very fair question, and I will tell you, I I did I had no idea if anyone would ever you know buy it in terms of a publisher who would. Then put covers on it so other people could read it. It was a complete success. I uh, a complete success out of the out of the blue. It was a case where I had no master plan to be a writer. I kind of wrote it by accident because I was wondering, you know, really everybody seems to want a vampire boyfriend, but how would you date? Because every date I know involved a meal out, and if they don't eat, what do you do? So, um, so that it really was a kind of just a a, a really fun experiment for me and the success that it has has been extraordinary and unexpected and wonderful in, in all kinds of ways
1: and you work by day as a college professor right
2: I am I'm a professor of history at the University of Southern California I teach Western civ and the history of science and so a lot of what I try to do in the book is just to bring all of my passion for the past and history to life for my readers
1: and your passions are so obvious. You are so warm and charming. I hope we get to meet in person someday, maybe uh, for a croissant in the Som- Sonoma Valley.
2: Exactly. Next time you're up there on, on the seaside, you let me know. I'll, I will drive nine hours and meet you for that croissant.
1: <laughs> It'll be worth it. Deborah Harkness, thank you so much for coming on Heritage Radio Network. I truly appreciate it, and congratulations on all of your success.
2: Thank you so much, Emily. It was a pleasure.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Chef Emily in real time again. When I thought our conversation had ended, Deborah and I actually went on to talk for a couple more minutes about wine, so I wanted to give you that piece of tape, and I didn't have a good way to edit it all together, so here you go. I
2: had so much fun. Um, uh filling my fabulously wealthy vampires wine cellar with wine from the 18th century and expensive bottles I would never buy myself. I had such a good time. There's actually a list of all of his um, wine bottles online uh, where I kind of gave a cellar list for this vampires wine cellar. It was oh, so much fun.
1: What's the website?
2: Um, it's, uh, my website Deborah, Deborah harkness all one word, dot com. And I can have uh, one of the the publicists send you the link if uh, if it doesn't work for you. Just be in touch with them. But my website is uh, has got it under. Oh gosh, you know, do you have an email? Can I shoot you an email with the link in? I do. It's
1: uh, it's Chef Emily at SharpAndHot.com.
2: Oh, that's easy. It's very at easy. <laughs> sharp and hot, um, just spelled out. Yep. Okay, cool. I will send you this link to his uh his wine cellar because it really is fun. You'll have you'll get a good giggle. Oh, um, that's excellent. Uh, and, and I honestly I'll wish put, fulfillment. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> and did you get to do a lot of research around the wine that you were going to put there?
2: Oh god, I wish. I mean, there were things like, you know, Comet Vintage Saturn so and things that I would have dearly loved to have tasted i always say to people if you i will give you a private reading and book event if you have a, any bottles in this uh in this cellar i'm happy to come and uh <laughs> and uh, taste them with
1: you that's but, so yeah. fun i um i just passed the first level of the court of Masters sommeliers oh my god because i was writing a story about it but i, I too have worked in wine my whole life but it was like It was just such a cool room of wine geeks to be, like, I feel like I'm part of a secret club.
2: (laughs) I know. It really is true. And they, I mean, as you know, they take it very seriously. So, um, you know, it's quite quite a thing to be in their midst and so much knowledge.
1: So much knowledge and so much, like, just able to recall dates and facts and, like, the specificity and memory that they have, I was blown away by. Yeah,
2: yeah, and the taste memory, which I don't have a great taste memory, um, you know. But for when they can do things like, you know, I get as good as the the varietal and maybe where what region it comes from. But I cannot do years.
1: Yeah, then yeah. Say, you
2: know, oh well, this is an eighty six because it has this,
0: and this. I'm just like, oh my god.
1: Right. Well, the Crazy. truth is, I'll give you it. Um, I'll give you a. In, from what I learned in the class, what they do is they narrow it down by vintage, by, like, three-year um, like three windows. So the difference between, like, a 2000 and a 97, you know, somewhere between 97 and 2000, or 2003 and 2006, like, it's
2: How
1: there's a so, lot of salesmanship not. and storytelling about that goes around what they're actually doing. <laughs> they talked out loud through their whole process. Wow. So it's wow. It's not that they just stick their nose in and say, oh, it's a 98 Chateau Margot. <laughs> no, they make it look that way, don't they? By, by design. They have, they have excellent marketing skills. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, uh, I actually just did a story that I'm in the process of editing now about the experience. I will send. I got your email. I'll send you the link to that when it's up on Heritage Net- Radio Network.
2: Okay, perfect. And I just sent you that link to that, uh, that um Matthew's Wine Cellar, so have fun paddling around in that. So, awesome. It was a pleasure. It was great to meet you. This is going
1: to air next Tuesday at 2pm and I will send you a link, of uh, a reminder and then you can share it with all your friends and let them Perfect. know what it'll be on. I
2: will put it up on Facebook and Twitter. Awesome. What a wonderful,
1: wonderful, wonderful. Thank Debbie, you so you're much, you're great. Emily. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: following program has been brought to you by tabard Inn. tabard Inn, washington dc's quintessential small hotel is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the white house vibrant yet unassuming the tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms each unique in character and design Feast on eclectic American cuisine
2: in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian
0: seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com.
1: When I was a kid, my father was a commercial fisherman and my mother gutted squid part-time. I remember standing in the driveway with numb fingers earning five cents for each scallop I opened, saving up nickels for a new Pearl Jam CD or a pair of lace-up Doc Martens. I say without hyperbole that my blood is part salt water. Flash forward to 2009. I attend a work function dinner. Seated with colleagues, the server offers the table a choice. Chicken or fish? My colleague asks, what's the fish? Salmon. I'll have the chicken, she replies. I take the fish and ask for the bread basket to be passed. My colleague is aghast. You, daughter of a commercial fisherman, order the salmon? She goes on to say that she loves salmon. All fish, really, but she just can't bring herself to eat them because, you know, the environment, or whatever. I stew on this story for years, trying mightily to stave off the cynical belief that until there is a global policy change or a complete collapse of the commercial fishing industry, whether or not I order the fish at a corporate function has exactly zero impact on the global fish population. Years pass. I continue to eat fish. I go so far as to propose a seafood-themed cookbook, The Fearless Cook's Guide to Sea Monsters, I'm an expert in the subject matter, an awarded food writer and culinary instructor with a radio platform, and I teach at prestigious institutions. Sale? None. The most eloquent rejection citing, and I quote, conservation controversy surrounding fishing and especially deep sea fishing at this time. A total of 12 publishers passed, citing the politically charged nature of encouraging people to eat fish. Around the time of rejection number 12 of my book proposal, I got an invitation to the second annual Sustainable Seafood Shindig, hosted by Tom Colicchio and his partner and event sponsor, Shisa Ortuzar. Hoping to find a self-selecting audience with a unified message to disprove my cynical theory, no global policy change, no seafood population change, I arrived and feasted on eight courses of sustainably gathered seafood prepared by eight highly acclaimed chefs. The problem... Not only was the sustainable seafood movement voice not unified, it was downright combative. There were several stakeholders represented. Local, wild, farmed, imported, and the public, theirs, consumers, and other assorted interested parties. Before dinner, everyone gathered around the bar for author Paul Greenberg's keynote speech. Mr. Greenberg stood under the sponsor's banner that read Pesca on linea sustainable small-scale fisheries of Chile and exclaimed more than once, that 83% of the seafood we consume in this country is imported, and this has got to stop. This statistic and variations on it, as Sustainable Seafood Week rolled on, was tweeted and retweeted and retweeted. So, confused, I called Tom Calicchio and asked him what he thought.
0: Uh, Tom Calicchio, chef-owner of craft restaurants and food activist. Obviously, when you bring a a speaker in, we don't tell them what to say. Mm -hmm. They have background about the event. But they're free to say whatever they want to say. And so, you know, Paul feels a certain way. I think a lot of people feel a certain way that, that um, you know, local is better for a lot of reasons. It's not always possible, but it, it still is,
1: is better. Here's Ron Vreeland, Operations Manager of Viking Village.
0: My point is that we need to support the local fishermen and buy locally produced products that come from the United States as compared to insisting on buying cheaper fish that comes from a country where more than likely there's no traceability, you don't know where it came from, and, you know, this country is importing 90% of its seafood. That's an absurd number. Go to your local fish markets and ask for what's local and fresh, and that's what people should be trying to do.
1: To hear True North Salmon Company tell it, were there no farmed fish for sale, wild catch would probably be as expensive as jewelry. Of course, they farm salmon and have an interest in keeping sustainably farmed fish on the menu. Confused? This daughter of a fisherman sure is. But here's a silver lining. One thing that nearly everyone agreed on is this. Unless it is specifically local, don't buy fish in a supermarket.
0: Don't go to you know, a, a, a supermarket to buy fish. You know, fish market to buy fish, and this is the problem with so many things that we're we're so, you know, nowadays everything's about convenience. It's like I oh, want to go to the store and buy everything. Well, I don't. You know, sometimes it's not a good. That's not the
1: answer. The cost of convenience is lost to traceability and integrity in the product. Seek out the producer. Go to the farmers market or to the dock, or purchase fish online from reputable purveyors and have it shipped right to your door. Pick up a copy of Paul Greenberg's American Catch. Don't not eat fish. As demand begets a marketplace, just pick the right fish. Here's Tom Calicchio again. There's no
0: one-size-fits-all here, that's kind of the issue with when we start talking about, a, you know, a, a, a food system and what sustainability is.
1: It's open to interpretation. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm Emily Peterson. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website